Well, good morning. Welcome to Mercy House. My name is Robert. I'm a lead pastor here. I want to welcome you. And I also want to welcome kids, elementary age, to go down with Mr. Charlie for uh, MH Kids class. So we're finishing up in the book of um, Jude this morning. So hopefully you're grabbing the Bibles there under the tables or opening it up on your phone, but the last couple of verses. So Jude has been a wild ride. Um, We started off being exhorted to contend for the faith or fight for the faith. And uh, those that were being written to by Jude were having some issues with false teachers in their church, and they're being told to call those false teachers out. And then in week two, we talked about uh, what Jude said in regard to why those false teachers were doing the things that they were doing and the consequences of their teaching, both for them and for their hearers or their, their, their followers. And then last week, week three, we looked at just basic practices of a healthy church, building one another up in that same faith, those essential truth claims, praying in the Holy Spirit, uh, waiting uh, in hope on the, the, the second coming of Jesus, things like that. And I think as, as you're reading through Jude, which is this very severe, kind of sober tone, it can sort of kind of make you nervous. Uh, you're responsible for a lot of fighting for the faith and looking out for false teachers and uh, making sure you're building one another up in, in the faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, all these things that I just mentioned. And it seems like a lot to get right. I don't know, as I re- was reading through this book and studying this book, I just kind of, kind of start feeling the weight of there's a lot to get right. And I'm not so sure that, that I, as your pastor, or you, as the people of God, have it in you to get it all right. At least if it's dependent solely upon us. If it's dependent solely upon us, we're not going to get it right. And there's, there's no shortage of examples of, of Christians as individuals at, or at churches who get it wrong completely wrong, and at one point we're getting it right. And so we too will get it wrong, completely wrong, unless there's some kind of a floor that's underneath us that will not drop out. I was reading a sermon by Charles Spurgeon on this exact passage, and he was talking about this fear of of not getting it right, and he talked about our weakness. But then he said that weakness coupled with the pace of life, uh, the load that we bear as we carry that in life, on top of the length of the journey of walking with Jesus decade after decade. So the pace and the load and the length added with our own human frailty and sinfulness. Again, we need a floor underneath us that will not drop out. And Jude, in this passage that we read today, is telling us there is a floor underneath us that will not drop out. So I'll read these two verses again. Jude 24 and 25. He writes, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.
The floor is God. The floor is God Himself. And so what we want to look at today in this passage is what exactly is God doing to, to give us this unshakable foundation that's underneath us? So what is He doing? How is He doing that? And why is He doing that? Okay, so what is He doing? How is He doing it? And why is He doing it? So what is He doing? Well, He's keeping the Christian from stumbling. He's keeping the Christian from stumbling. So this word keep, it, it keeps showing up in the book of Jude. At the beginning, he says, you're kept for Jesus Christ. And then later he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. And then here he says, him who is able to keep you from stumbling. What we see on, in the beginning and the end of the book of Jude are these bookends of God doing something to keep us, keeping us for Jesus Christ, keeping us from stumbling. And inside the bookends are all these responsibilities of contending for the faith and making sure you're, you're calling out false teachers and building one another up in faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. All these things are inside the two bookends. And these are very serious exhortations. They're very sober. But as we're doing those things, as we're carrying those responsibilities, God is keeping us. We are being kept for Jesus. We are being kept from stumbling by God. Now, I'm good at stumbling. You don't, you don't have to try to stumble. I don't know if you noticed that. You, 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 you did, there's this, this gravitational pull. You kind of drag your toe over something, and then you're stumbling. You don't have to try. You don't have to put it on your calendar, right? You say, okay, I'm going to put this in my phone. I'm going to stumble. We, 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 we fall into this literally, naturally. And this is true physically, but it's also true spiritually. There's a gravitational pull that pulls us towards stumbling. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes about this in Romans 7, verse 18. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So here's what Paul's saying. On one hand, he, he's saying, I'm new. I have new desires. I actually desire the things of God. On the other hand, I have to deal with this daily reality of what he calls indwelling sin or the flesh. And when he says the flesh, he's, he's not talking about your physical flesh. He's talking about a spiritual reality, right? That as human beings in a fallen world, even if we're Christians, we still have this indwelling sin. And this indwelling sin is like a gravitational pull that draws us into stumbling. And so instead of living out the fruit of the Spirit, oftentimes, like love, joy, and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control... We instead stumble into anger, selfishness, lust, greed, apathy. But that's the little picture. Jude is zooming out in a big picture. He wants you to see the big picture. A lot of his book is little picture of exhorting us to contend for the faith and build one another up and pray in the Holy Spirit and, and deal with these everyday issues 
that sinners who have been brought together in community have to deal with. So, how, how can He keep us? Or, or what, what does He mean when He, he says He's going he's to keep us from stumbling? He, he uses this phrase here, He says that He's going he's to be presenting us blameless. Present us blameless. Anybody feel blameless this morning? I mean, I don't feel blameless this morning, right? And in the practical day in, day out, as I look at the evidence of my life, the last time I checked, I was not blameless. But what but Jude is doing is, is he's, he's zooming out, and he is, he's looking at what's going to happen at the end of days. That God, by His grace, is going to present us blameless. So what he's saying here when he says he's going to keep you from stumbling is he's not saying you're not going to sin. He's not saying you're not going to have challenges, that you're not going to have hard days. You're not going to do things that are against God on a periodic basis. It's not, he's not talking about that kind of stumbling. What he's talking about is completely sabotaging your eternal salvation. That's what he's talking about. And he's saying if you're a genuine believer, if you have truly put saving faith in Christ... It is a 100% guarantee you will not sabotage your faith, your eternal salvation. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? There was a study done a few years back by Barna Research Institute, and they asked people that would self-describe as born-again Christians. They asked them this question, do you rely on something additional to the saving work that Jesus provided on the cross? 25% of them, one quarter, said, yes, I do rely on something in addition to what Jesus did for me on the cross to be saved. That's not the true gospel. Relying on anything but the grace of the gospel is not the gospel, okay? Anything that's Jesus plus is not the gospel. We talked about grace alone a few weeks back. This this is the true gospel gospel. And so what, what Jude is showing us is, is that by God's grace, those that have entered into to a saving faith relationship with Jesus will 100% guaranteed make it to the end. They will be presented blameless before God. Now, how does he do that? Well, look how he does it. He says in verse 25, So he says, present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is how he does it. So what does he do? He keeps us from stumbling and presents us blameless. How does he do it? He does it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, every time Jude does this Jesus Christ, our Lord thing, he's preaching the gospel. And he does it multiple times, four times in the book. In in verse 4, he says, Master and Lord Jesus Christ. There we have four names. Verse 17, the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 25, we just read, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Is he just like using Jesus' full name? You know, is this like using your middle name and your last name to be called? You know, you get to call me Robert Thomas Crumry. Hi, Robert Thomas Crumry. No, that's not what he's doing. He's preaching the gospel. And so when he says Lord, he points to Jesus' divinity. Right? When he says Jesus, he points to his saving. Jesus literally means Yahweh saves. When he points to Christ, 
He points to his kingship, his rulership over all things. He is the messianic king that the Jews were waiting for. And so through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we are being kept. We will be presented blameless at the end of days. So how does this work? Like, how can Jesus do that when in my day-to-day life, I'm still seemingly stumbling, sinning, struggling, right? And so it's here where some sound doctrine would be helpful. We've, we've talked about sound doctrine, right? So sound doctrine, we, we said it's, it's biblically faithful, practically helpful summaries of truth in the Bible. Biblically faithful, practically helpful, right? Summaries of truth in the Bible. So, so we use sound doctrine to help us understand a, a particular verse, right? Because we might take one verse and like create a whole theology out of it, and that would would not serve us well. We want to have some sound doctrine to help us understand the Bible as a whole. How do we think about Romans 7, like I just read about Paul saying, I'm not doing the very thing that I want to do, and then we look at Jude saying, he's going to keep you and present you blameless. How how do those in the same Bible, right? And so what we want to do, we want to think about salvation in a a larger kind of picture, right? So when we think of salvation, the saving work of God, as He saves sinners like you and me, we we, want to think about it in in three different categories. So justification, sanctification, and glorification, okay? There's some some good theological words for you, justification, sanctification, and glorification. So, there's some little taglines for each of these. So, justification, I am saved. So, we're looking back and we're saying, I was was saved once for all, right? And then sanctification, I am being saved. So that's more like a process of being made more like Christ, being made holy. That's what sanctification means. And then glorification. I will be saved. This is what Jude's talking about as he says God's going to present you blameless at the end of days. So let's talk about each of these. So justification, meaning that my sins have been placed on Jesus and Jesus has died in my place. And so my guilt has been totally washed away. Jesus has paid the penalty for my guilt. But not only that, Jesus' righteousness has now been given to me. So not only has my sins gone to Jesus, but now His righteousness has been placed on me as a free gift. It is by grace. Martin Luther, the the great reformer, he called this the great exchange. So it's it's quite a good exchange for us. We offer sin, and Jesus gives us righteousness. You say, well, where's that in the Bible? Well, lots of places, but here's one. Romans 3.21 and following. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So, he's saying there's a way to get righteous that is apart from the law. There's a way to get righteous apart from doing the righteous law. And how do you get that? You get it by receiving this gift of grace. 
Right? Sometimes this is called imputed righteousness. It's not something we do. It's something that God does for us. So again, I ask you, have you relied on God's grace alone to make you righteous? If you haven't, you're not a Christian. You may go to church, you may say Christian things, you may say you believe in God, you believe the Bible, you believe Jesus rose from the dead, you believe in the Trinity, all those things. But if you're not relying on grace alone, you don't believe in the gospel. And you must believe in the gospel to be made righteous, right? to be a Christian. So that's the kind of once for all part. Now, what about the process? The process of being made holy because you become a Christian, you'll notice you're not just immediately practically holy, right? So what's going on there? Well, the process of sanctification. So you are also being saved. Um, this happens in the lives of those who are truly justified. These two things, justification, sanctification, they are inseparable. They are not the same thing, but they are inseparable. So those who are justified will participate will experience ongoing sanctification. doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you're not going to have some hard days. It doesn't mean you're not going to sin, but it means you're going to be in this ever-increasing growth in holiness over time. The way Jesus would des describe this or illustrate this, He would say uh, th that those that have the proper root will re reveal a, a proper fruit. Right? That if you have the root of an apple tree, you are going to display apples. If you have the root of a thorn bush, you cannot display apples. You cannot produce the fruit of apples. No matter how hard you try, you're going to produce thorns. And so if you have the root of justification, you will have the fruit of sanctification. Apostle Paul uses this same imagery in Romans 6, 22. He says, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, so he's talking about the past, justification, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. There's the third piece, glorification. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So those who've been genuinely justified by grace through faith in Christ will be sanctified. There'll be a process of becoming holy. These are not the same thing, but they are inseparable. Now, Evangelical Baptist types, sometimes they get this wrong, right? And I, I'd say when they get this wrong is, is in theologies that I would call the pray-the-prayer theology. Walk an aisle, pray a sinner's prayer, and get saved. And then live however you feel like, right? However you want. Never follow Jesus. Never read your Bible. Ne never be a part of a church, right? And, and these pray the prayer folks are saying, well, that, yeah, that person's a Christian because they prayed the prayer. And I, I remember when I was in Stillwater as a college pastor talking to students in their dorms, and so this is Bible Belt, right? And I'm talking to, to them about Christianity, and they're saying, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go, really? Yeah, I, I, I got saved when I was five years old at vacation Bible school. And I'm looking around their dorm room, and there's like porn on the walls, and, and there's, there's like whiskey bottle tower to the roof. There's, there seems no indicator that there's any following of Jesus in that room, any sanctification whatsoever. Now, 
Do I know for sure anything about that person's heart? No. But the fruit I'm looking at would indicate that they don't have the, the root of true justification. Uh, the Catholic Church mixed these things up a bit, this justification, sanctification thing. So they kind of flip sanctification and justification. So what they would say is you, you, you enter into the sanctification process. So through baptism, you get grace to then begin this process of being made holy, and you're, you're, you're moving toward justification and glorification. And when you die, you probably haven't quite gotten there yet, so you need to go to purgatory. And in purgatory, the rest of that impurity is purged from you, which is what purgatory, that's what that, that means, that word means. And then eventually you get to the place of being justified and then glorified. And what I'm saying is the Bible is teaching that you are justified by grace through faith in Christ, and then that then jumpstarts your sanctification, which is the process, which then leads into glorification. Uh, another verse that, that is, seems to clearly teach this, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, still, then quite clear up. How can Jude say, I will be one day presented blameless at the end of days. And this is the, the third part, glorification. This is when we stand before God at the end of days completely perfected. Completely perfected. And this too is, is, is accomplished by His grace. It's not accomplished by our works. It's not accomplished by something we do. If it was up to us, we would screw it up. The reason we're kept to that finish line is because of what God does. God keeps us by His grace. He saves us by His grace. He sustains the process of sanctification by His grace. He accomplishes glorification by His grace. Uh, Paul talks about this in Romans 8, 29, 30. He says, For those whom He foreknew, and He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers... And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In those verses, Paul is zooming out. He's unveiling the plan of God. And he's saying, God has predestined. He's predetermined the salvation of human beings. And in that, in that salvation, those that are justified, you notice what he says there, will also be glorified. And he speaks of those in both in the past tense, even though glorification is in the future. <laughs> and it's his way of saying, this is a 100% guarantee that those who have been justified will make it to the finish line. You will be glorified. And this is how Jude can say, on one hand, your church needs to clean its act up. You've got false teachers. You're compromising the gospel. You need to build yourself up in faith. You guys aren't praying enough, right? He can say that on one hand. But on the other hand, he can say, God's going to keep you. He's going to present you blameless at the end of days. This should be a great encouragement to you as a Christian, to us as a church. That God is going to keep us. He's going to see us 
through the end, to the end. Nothing, not even you, is going to sabotage God's predetermined plan. You're being kept by God. Now, why does God do this? Why does God do this? I think our knee-jerk answer is because He loves us. And that is absolutely true. We could go to places like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, right? But that's not what Jude points to. Jude points to, well, look at what he points to. In the, in the verse 24, I'll read that verse again. Now to Him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. His glory with great joy. This is not the only reasons He does this, but this is, this is some major reasons why He keeps us is for His glory and joy. Now, glory is the outward display of God's inward reality. It's the outward display of God's inward reality. We can understand that on a human level, right? We see a great athlete that has the inward ability to do something really amazing, and then they actually do it, and, and there's glory, right? You go, wow, I can't believe that they did that, right? Or a musician's ability to, to play an instrument, right? They have that ability in them, but you don't see it until they actually pick up the instrument and they play that instrument, and then you, oh, glory, right? Or, or, or a scientist who has in them the ability to figure out a complex problem, but then they figure out the complex problem, and then it's like, oh, it's glory, right? I remember watching... Uh, Stephen Olo defend his dissertation. He, he was getting his PhD in math at UMass. And it was basically Steve and a piece of chalk standing before a panel of professors who were kind of looking at him with these scowls. And he just, he just started writing this, this equation that went on panel after panel after panel after panel, and then he got to the fourth panel, and then he went and he started over again, and he put the panel up to the, to the, the ceiling, and he started on a fresh panel. And I'm telling you, eight blackboard panels with Steve and a piece of chalk, and it was glorious, right? I, I, I was like, I can't believe that that is in him. There wasn't a number on that board, okay? It was all letters. It was all theory. I was like, I have no idea what's going on. I leaned over to Seth. Seth, Seth's an engineer. I'm like, Seth, do you have any idea what he's doing? He's like, no, I have no idea what he's doing. But I, that was in Steve, right? And then, and then he reveals it, and, and it was glory, right? I remember as a small uh, child going with my dad, who was a track coach, high school track coach, and we'd go to the state track meet. And it was at the University of Texas every year, this massive stadium and this beautiful track. And standing there with my dad, he's got a stopwatch, and, and we're watching the 100 meters. And this is like my favorite, favorite event in, in track and field. And it's just, it's just so quiet, right? And they're getting in the blocks, and, 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 the, and the, the, you know, the, the gunman is putting up the pistol, the starter's pistol. And then he shoots, and they explode out of those blocks. And then it's just like a roar, Right? to see the speed of those runners. And we always knew it was in them. You kind of see it, right? These bulging muscles and, and, and these, these great records that they had in the past. But, but when you saw it before your eyes, there was glory, right? And, and, and what do you do when you see glory and you're amazed by glory? You praise it, right? That's when a, gr a great musician does an amazing job on the instrument. You can't help yourself. You're like, yes, 
Why do you do that? Right? It's glory. It's glory. It, 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 it's, it's the knee-jerk response, right? And, and this is what Jude is saying about God. He, he's not running 100 meters, and, and, and he's, he's not playing an instrument, but he is saving sinful humanity. He's saving sinful humanity. God the Father is sending the Son. God the Son is securing that salvation for us. God the Spirit is applying that salvation to each individual Christian. And Jude sees that, and he sees glory. It's, it's glorious. This justification, this sanctification, this, this glorification, this is glorious. And it's bought and paid for, all of it, all of that salvation, bought and paid for at the cross of Christ. Now, notice that glory is coupled with joy. It's coupled with joy. This is why we go and see glorious things, is it not? Because we want to feel joy. We sit in that concert and we look at that musician or we listen to their music, listen to their singing, because we want to see that glory and then we want to experience that joy. This is what God wants for us, for us to view His glory and to experience joy. Listen to what Jesus says to His disciples. John 15, 11. I think this is so amazing because Jesus is going to die on the cross the very next day. Okay, this is Thursday night. He's going to die on the cross next day. He says this, These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I don't know. The night before my son just had ACL reconstructive surgery, right? The night before the surgery, I'm not feeling much joy, right? I'm, I'm feeling anxiety. We're driving to the surgery the next day. I'm like, Coop, how you doing? He's like, I'm fine. I'm like, I'm not fine, right? Even though it's the third kid, third ACL surgery. That, that's a whole other story. But, but God is this infinite source of glory and joy. And that's what Jesus is saying there. He's saying, even though tomorrow I'm, I'm going to meet my death at the cross, there's, there's glory and there's joy. Now, I think it's helpful to think about what joy is. I think John Piper, probably one of the most... Uh, person that's done the most thinking, at least in the contemporary world, about joy, right? And he has this little definition I think is helpful. He says, Christian, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as He causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the Word and in the world, all right? So you see, see what he's doing there. You're beholding the glory of God in the Word and in the world, and as you're doing that, the Holy Spirit is producing this feeling. And I think we're scared of that word when we talk about joy. And this is one of the places Piper was helpful to me. Because I would say things about joy. I'd say, well, joy's not happiness. Joy's not happiness because happiness is circumstantial. Joy's something else. Joy is deeper. And by, by saying deeper, I'm saying it's not a feeling. It's not this subjective emotion. That was wrong. It is an emotion. It's just not based on a circumstance that is not trustworthy. It's based on God. And He is an infinite source of glory. And as, as we drink of that infinite source of glory, we have an infinite potential for joy, for this emotional joy that comes 
in the power of the Holy Spirit. And again, I think that's important that it's through the Spirit. It, it, it's, it's not something we can conjure up. It's not just something that, that we have control over. It's something that the Holy Spirit, it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? It's part of the fruit. Love, joy, peace, right? And so this is what I told you a couple weeks ago. I was praying actually for my son, Cooper, who was really struggling as we were getting closer and closer to the surgery. And he was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be on crutches for a month and I'm going to be struggling for another five months. And and he just was discouraged, and I just started praying for his joy. I'm like, God, give Cooper joy through the supernatural work of the Spirit. And I saw before my eyes joy bubbling up in Cooper. And if you know Cooper, that's not an easy thing. That's a miracle, right? <laughs> it's produced supernaturally. And so the God who is infinitely glorious is this place of infinite joy. And we need this. We need this. I need it. Right? I've been in the basement with a, a, a teenager. Or, or, yeah, he's not a teenager anymore. Wow, he's 22. Uh, in the, trying to help him get over ACL reconstructive surgery while my wife's in California helping out with kids with her brother. And I'm just like, this stinks. I don't, God, I don't want to do this. Right? The circumstances were not producing joy. There's still an infinite source of joy in the infinitely glorious God. And that's just small stuff, really, when you look at it. Some of you are dealing with much, much worse things than that. And so as, as Jude talks about this glory and joy thing, he, he then moves into what I'd like to call a glory and joy party. It's like a fireworks display of glory for God. Verse 25, he says, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. We could preach on that all summer. We could preach on that verse all summer. But I'm just going to speak on it for about 10 minutes, okay? These are, think of these as, as fireworks, explosions of glory, right? So he mentions the glory word again, it's kind of this catch-all word for the outward expression of the inward reality of God. He then ascribes majesty to God, right? This is his greatness, that he is the greatest. We usually hear it uh, in the context of kings and queens, your majesty, your highness, Right? And why are we saying that to kings and queens? We're saying, there's no one higher than you, O king, O queen. Except here he's saying, there's no God that is higher than you. You are the only God, he says. Then he ascribes dominion. This is God's domination, his power, his strength to do what he sets out to do. He's not just sitting back like, like a puppet king pretending to have majesty, but he can't do anything about it. He actually has the power to do everything absolutely what he needs to do. He's not just talk. He also ascribes authority. So not only does he have majesty and have dominion, but he has an inherent right to exercise that power. He's not someone who's, who's stolen power away from someone who really should have the power. And then later on, he's going to get toppled. That's not, that's not going to happen because he has authority. It is an inherent right to rule, to have Dominion, And then the great, sort of the grand finale of the fireworks show, right? Before all time, now 
and forevermore. So now he's zoomed out in the timelessness, right? He, he zoomed out past beginning and end, saying that this was before all time, that, that these attributes of dominion and authority and glory, all these things were before time, and not only were they before time, they are now. But not only are they now, they are forevermore. I think he pretty much got it covered, right? Before time, now, and forevermore. He's saying that God is eternal. He's, he's eternal. Which means that these attributes, and this is not an exhaustive list of attributes, okay? There's many, many other attributes that we could talk about, but this is what Jude throws out. These are some pretty good ones, I would say. His majesty, his dominion, his authority, his, his glory. And when he says that they are eternal, that they are outside of time, before time, they are now, they're forevermore, he is saying they are also infinite. They are infinite. For those things to be eternal, they must also be infinite, which means that, that there's an infinite supply of these attributes, right? Which is how he's going to keep us. This is how he kept you last week. This is how he keeps us right now. This is how he's going to keep you next week. If you're a genuine believer, you've placed saving faith in Jesus, he's going to keep you next week. He's going to keep you the 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 next week. It's an infinite source of grace and power and mercy and love, dominion and authority. And it is going to keep you on past your death into the life after. And guess what? He's just going to keep on keeping you forevermore throughout all of eternity. What this is, what Jude is doing here, is what's called a doxology. Doxa, meaning glory. And you see the Apostle Paul do this all the time. Many of the New Testament writers do this. And they just have a fireworks display of attributes of God. And what they're trying to do is help us see these glorious things about God to produce joy in us. Right? Because we, we need this, do we not? Again, when you zoom in and you're looking at the struggles and you're looking at tomorrow morning and you're looking at what you're going to have to deal with in the coming days, you need to then zoom out and see the glory producing joy of God. This is what we're doing every time we come to this table. Jesus instructed us to do this as a church over and over and over and over and over again. And why did he do that? Because he wanted us as a church on a regular basis to have a glory and joy party. And at this glory and joy party, there's no punch, there's no cookies. There's bread and there's a cup. And the reason for that is because this is to cause us to remember, to think on, to behold what, what John Piper calls the blazing center of God's glory. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's the blazing center. You, you want to look straight in to the most glorious thing that God has ever done. You look in to the cross of Christ. Which is why Jesus has us come back to this again and again and again and again and again. And so as Jesus is zooming in 
on the night on which he's betrayed, the night before his death, the night all of his disciples are going to they're going to deny him. They're going to run and like, like scared uh, because they, 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 they don't have enough loyalty to hang with him, right? Why? Because they're weak. They're frail. They're sinners. The pace is, is really hard. The load is hard. The length is hard. And so as he looked into those frail humans, he took bread. He, he broke it. He gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and after he blessed it, he gave it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. It's there that he lets them know that this thing that he's doing, which is the blazing center of God's glory, is also creating a covenant community of saved sinners who by grace can then come together and be a family together. Not just because they drew up a contract or have a little constitution, but because of what this represents, the blazing center of God's glory. He also told them, hey, do this until I come again. Do this until I come again. He's letting them know that, that the grace of God that's being remembered as they take this bread and they take this cup is going to keep them until he returns. It's going to keep them until he returns. And so you too, if, if you are a Christian, this is what's true of you. God is keeping you now and God is going to keep you forevermore. This is good news. This is good news. If you've not yet received Christ by faith, I want to encourage you to do that this morning. This is really good news. It is the most glorious news, the most joy-producing news that you will ever hear. Receive that news by faith, knowing that by God's grace, you will be justified. The guilt of your sins will be placed on Jesus. The righteousness of Jesus will be given to you, imputed to you is the $10 word. That will be by grace through faith. And from that point forward, you will be kept in Christ. So with that in mind, let's both confess our frailty to God. Let's cling to His grace that keeps us. But let us be encouraged that it is Him, that He is able to keep us and present us blameless on that day. Let's pray. Father, you, you are glorious. Son, you are glorious. Spirit, you are glorious. This, this predetermined plan that, that you have so flawlessly carried out in the death of God's one and only Son his burial, His resurrection, His ascension, His one day return. Lord, it is so glorious. And may we behold that with our hearts this morning. Lord, many of us come into this room, myself included, not feeling the joy of the glory that is ours. Lord, may we repent of that. May we drink deeply this morning of the glory of God. And may that produce a joy in us. Yes, an emotion, 
but an emotion produced by the Holy Spirit as we behold your glory and the good news of the gospel. Lord, may you bless this cup, bless this bread as we take it, both as an individual but also as a community, Lord, as we trust in you and your grace alone to keep us now and forevermore. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.